It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at PenFed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is October the 19th in 2022, and my guest is David K. Levine. David is an economist at the European University Institute and at Washington University in St. Louis. He's the author of Against Intellectual Monopoly, an empirical study of the economics of intellectual property that concludes that IP is not necessary for innovation and as a practical matter is damaging to growth, prosperity, and liberty. The book had a strong influence on me and my thesis of stranded technologies that I explore on this podcast. IP law seems to me like a great example of a regulation that is holding back a lot of innovation, not only in one, but in many different industries across the board from media production, software, financial markets, all the way to pharma. I myself did not realize that pervasive influence of IP law and innovation and honestly didn't think much about it before David Friedman, the economist, talked about the book on a podcast episode being asked about patent laws and open source. And truth to the open source philosophy, I found your book available online <laughs> and I was immediately very hooked. I think the book is extremely persuasive not only because of the subject and the thesis, but also in terms of the quality of the writing, the argumentation strategy, the data presented. It was just one of these books that's very dense, but at the same time, it was a total page turner for me. So I'm very excited to have one of the two authors of the book on. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. And thank you for your kind words about the book. Maybe I just want to say a word about regulation and about the perspective that the two of us brought to this book. Because we were brought up in old school of Chicago economics, so with a general sort of leaning against regulation and the sense that, that regulatory capture is a real thing, that often regulation is used by big firms to keep competitors out. And in, in general, I think the two of us are skeptical of regulation. And so it's interesting because I think many economists, we started into this with the idea that patents or an intellectual property in general is evil, but a necessary evil. And we were doing theoretical research and discovered that it wasn't as necessary from a theoretical point of view as we had thought. And that caused us to start looking at the evidence. There's a huge literature, of course, on patents, intellectual property, economics. But the empirical literature was at war with itself because it's based on a theory that says you need it. And yet the empirical economists could never discover what this need was. Right, So there should have been more innovation if there was more patents and so forth and so on. Nobody could ever find this stuff. And so we realized very quickly that there was a problem here, which eventually resulted, wrote a number of papers about it for economics journals, but eventually resulted in the book. 
which isn't really original research in the sense that our writing for economics journals is. It's really attempt to draw together evidence gathered by a great many different people into a single place to try to present a coherent picture of what we know about the impact of patents. And indeed, the perspective is very much that it acts like a very powerful regulatory device. They are, after all, enforced by the government, and they are used in much the same way that other kinds of regulatory capture methods are used to inhibit innovation rather than to promote innovation. Just to give our listeners a sense of what we're talking about, what is IP? What is IP law? So there's actually three different kinds of intellectual property. Well, there's slightly more, but there are three main branches of intellectual property, copyrights, patents, and also to a certain extent, trademarks. Let me leave trademarks off the table. It's a complicated subject and maybe not as interesting as the other two. Copyrights and patents are basically both government grants of monopoly power. They're intended to be for the first person to do something, although in practice, it doesn't always work that way. And they provide, supposedly copyright provides very narrow protection for a very long time. Well, patents provide broader protection, but for a shorter period of time. Now, I think you want to talk more about patents and copyright. Copyright law has gotten also out of control so that the breadth of copyright has become much wider than it was ever thought to be. So that, for example, in music, it's possible to copyright four or five notes, if you can imagine such a thing. Patent law has not grown out of control the way that copyright law has. Patent lengths hasn't expanded in a long time, whereas copyright has gotten much, much longer over a long period of time. It was started, if I remember correctly, at two terms of seven years, and up to now it's up to 95 years or something. Patents were 17 years. It's extended to 20, but they change when the start date is so that in practice it's not really much of a difference. The big changes in patents over time has been with the set of things that are considered patentable. So many things that were not in one time considered patentable become patentable. And we could talk more about that, particularly in the context of software. But this is all modern development, the patenting and software. It's not at all unique. And I can describe a life cycle of a new industry, starting with innovations that aren't patentable, and explain how it is that then eventually patent law comes to cover things that that weren't originally patentable. Computers industry is actually a pretty good example of that. So patents, part of the reason that the length of patents haven't expanded is because there's a little bit more give and take in the sense that the interest groups on patents are both in the business community. So on copyrights, it's basically the business community with a strong lobbying arms against a fairly broad public that's hard to organize. In the case of patents, it's a little bit more balanced on the political front. And the reason for that is he or she who lives by the patent dies by the patent. So firms get both advantages potentially from patents, but they also get the, the other side of the patents shoved at them as well. So at any moment of time, there's firms suffering from patents and firms profiting from patents. And so there's a contest going on back and forth between those two groups. So that's a bit of a background. We think of patents typically as having to do with inventions, whereas copyrights have to do with expressions of ideas. Although nowadays patents have become so big. We imagine, I think, many people, that a patent is like a blueprint or a diagram of some working machine or some working software, some actual code. This is actually far from the case. Most patents are actually fairly vague claims that you do A and then you do B and then you do C and some great result is supposed to come from this. And it's a practical recipe to doing anything is almost totally useless. So there's a whole art among patent lawyers of writing patents that are as vague as possible so that 
part of the purpose of patents is that instead of people maintaining trade secrecy, that when the patent expires, everybody will have access to the basic idea of the blueprint. That's not true. There's some exceptions. So, for example, pharmaceuticals are exceptional in this respect, right? So pharmaceutical products, chemical products, you do have to reveal the chemical formula, which is, does have value to a competitor. But for the most, most part, if you read patents, you'll just find it amusing. And you'll try to, and some of these patents refer to devices not only that don't work, but they can't work. People are patenting, you know, sending things to the fifth dimension. I mean, it's really quite remarkable. Some of the things that patent examiners allow. Copyrights you simply claim. Patents are different and you have to apply for them. And there's a process you go through. There's a U.S. patent office. The same thing's true in other countries as well. They have patent offices and they're patent examiners and they read the patent application. Often they reject them, but usually for silly reasons because they don't like the wording or they don't like the references. It's if it's like a bad editor in some sense. Some patent, some patent examiners are much more lenient than others and issue a lot of bad patents for things that should never be patented. Others are more strict. So there's a little bit of the luck of the draw on getting something patented. Sometimes bad patents get through. And of course, what people do who are trying to create bad patents is just to bombard the patent office with dozens and dozens of them. And also to have lawyers who are very skilled at knowing exactly what it is. It's like writing a grant proposal. It's not necessarily about the substance so much as it's about the form. And if you put the patent application in the right form, you can get your patent through more or less independent of the degree of innovation involved than what it is that's being patented. Yeah. If I put myself back to a time where I didn't read your book, yeah. I sort of pre-analytic understanding of patents and copyright, I think is very similar to most people. So you hear about patents in the context of the inventor. Right. So right. someone comes up with a light bulb above its head and invents this great machine and you need patents so you can, you're the one who is entitled to the benefit of that invention. And that is necessary to give people an incentive to innovate. If, even in economics classes, I think you, you see a lot of, many people try to measure how innovative countries are as a whole by the number of patents that they register. And on the copyright side, that's when people go into the movie theater, they see this anti-piracy ad and they intuit that, hey, yeah, musicians or artists, they should benefit from what they made. And it's not okay to quote unquote steal it from them. But at the same time, many people probably do it anyway, right? It's not a capital punishment wrong kind of thing, but at the same time, many people intuit that it's all right. So what do you respond to that typically? So I would say a couple of things like that. First of all, I should say as a sort of a, a, as a Chicago leaning economist, I very much think that people should be able to profit off of the ideas that they have and the things that they do. So it's hardly the case that I'm opposed to any that artists or inventors or people like that should earn profits from what they do, even very large profits. And we can talk more about how that takes place in just a bit. Theft is really a propaganda term in this context because copying is not theft, right? If I take your watch, it's gone. You don't have your watch anymore. If I copy your idea, you still have your idea. I haven't taken anything from you. Insofar as I've stolen anything from you, what I've stolen from you are customers. That is, if I take your idea and do, suppose I take your book and I copy it and I sell it. What have I stolen from you by selling the book? What I've done is I've taken potentially, not all, some of the customers, maybe, maybe your book was priced higher. I'm selling your book cheap. I might be selling to people and we're going to buy from you anyway, in which case I've stolen nothing. 
but I may also be selling to some people that are buying my cheap copy of your book rather than your expensive copy of your book, and I've effectively stolen those customers from you. Here's the thing, I think from the point of view of moral philosophy as opposed to economics, you don't own customers, right? Customers are up for grabs, right? You don't have, just because you have an idea, you're not entitled to particular customers for that idea. This is the point I want to emphasize. Now, there's practical issues, and the practical issue, and this is the rationale ultimately behind patents and intellectual property, the rationale is that by stealing your customers, it's less profitable. That's certainly true. And therefore, you have less incentive to produce the idea in the first place. And that's the, that is the underlying rationale behind these things. There's a lot of problems with that rationale, which I would like to talk about. But the first thing I want to say is with respect to patents, we talk about inventors. Inventors, you should do what I do, which is spend some time talking to patent lawyers. Patent lawyers vociferously defend patents, but not because they protect innovators. Patent lawyers see it as, oh, ideas are cheap. That's actually true. The big expense is the investment. So if you have an idea for a light bulb, that's great. That's not so hard to do. The big cost is in building the factory to produce the light bulbs. And they want protection for the investors. And this goes back to the invention of the steam engine, actually, when Bolton, who was Watt's partner, was a big investor. And he insisted that Watt patent the steam engine in order to give him a monopoly for his factory. Here's the thing. We don't generally give people monopolies so they can build factories. That, that should make you a little bit skeptical. So why do these particular factories need to have monopoly protection? If I go and I open a store and put in furniture or I open a factory to produce, I open a farm or whatever it is, I have to make a big investment, right? It's a farm and I have to buy cows, I might have to buy machinery. The factory, I have to buy machines, Right. I'm not protected. Nobody gives me a monopoly. I have to compete with other people in their factories. So you should start by just the presumption, why do these particular factories, the light bulb factory, why does that need to be protected? Right? When the automobile factory doesn't. So there would be a question just to plant a seed and doubt in people's mind about this whole rationale for patents. One more thing about this inventor issue, since we're on the topic. We have this kind of idealized notion, in my case, maybe from reading Tom Swift novels when I was growing up, of kind of the independent inventor, the genius that sits in the room and has great ideas, that this is a source of all innovation. So there's two things about that. First of all, that's pretty cheap. And the particular thing that is always a topic in these kinds of novels is the big firm comes in, they somehow get the idea away from the innovator, the inventor, before they can patent it, and then they run off with it and do it all on their own. Real innovation, first of all, doesn't work that way in several different dimensions. For the most part, they, these kinds of innovators who have brainstorms in their offices don't exist. They'd actually have a really hard time tracing any really important inventions to that kind of a source. But the second thing is, the devil really is in the details. Having the idea for a light bulb was a lot different than building a practical light bulb. If I actually not just patent an idea, okay, put a piece of glass here and stick a filament there, you know, that's my idea for the light bulb, but I actually build a light bulb. And some firm comes along and sees my light bulb, but even takes the blueprints for my light bulb. That is a long way from being able to build a factory that builds light bulbs. These guys, even if they came and they completely stole this stuff from me, that is, literally took my blueprints away so I don't have them anymore. If they had any sense whatsoever, they're still going to pay me. Why are they going to pay me? Because I know how to make light bulbs and they don't. 
right? So yeah, the expertise that is built up in a genuine innovation has value independent of whether or not people had the idea or not. We saw this. This was there are big debates over patents in the pharmaceutical industry. If you just know the chemical formula, that's enough. Everybody can imitate you immediately. Now, there's massive evidence that this isn't true. But the place where we really saw this was in the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Because remember how long it took between the, you know, at least one of the vaccines was invented in a space of 12 hours or something like that. So the cost of that particular invention was 12 hours of some very expert person's time. Now, why did it take them so long before these vaccines hit the market? So some people think it's because they had to go through all this testing. But it turns out, I thought that might be the case, but it turns out that's not true. Because even after the testing was completed, and even though they started building factories the moment that they had the idea, right? So, for example, AstraZeneca, six months after the vaccine was approved, was still unable to produce it in adequate quantities. Plants were being shut down because they weren't working correctly, right? Actually, the idea that just knowing the chemical formula enables you to produce a working pharmaceutical product is absurd. You and I would have no chance, right? We've got to get scarce people with degrees in biochemistry and expert in producing pharmaceutical products to begin with. Those people are in short supply. And the second thing is there's a huge amount of figuring, practical figuring out how to do it. And that's what we saw. These factories were failing because they were being built quickly by people who weren't necessarily properly experienced and they would fail. Okay. These are the sorts of obstacles that are the real obstacles to innovation. It's not so much having an idea as being able to put a practical product on the table. And here's the heart of the reason why patents are not so essential to innovation, right? Because your protection as an innovator and a producer is your ability to actually build a working product and get it manufactured. And if you can do that, you have a great advantage over your rivals, right? First of all, you're first to market. Right. So you're selling products while they're still fiddling around in their factories trying to get the thing to work. Right. Don't trust me on this. Trust Elon Musk. Right. Why did Elon Musk release all the patents to his the electrical components of the Tesla? Because he figured this out belatedly. He thought he should patent it. It would protect him from competition and so forth and so on. At some point, he figured out that this was ridiculous. Right. Other people couldn't do this stuff anyway because they didn't know how to do it. Why does his spaceship company build spaceships that nobody else can duplicate? Is because he's patented the secret of the landing fins? I don't think so. Nobody else can do it. It's there. We can see it. You see how the thing lands, right? But the devil's in the details. He doesn't need to patent that stuff. And that's yeah. in general the nature of innovation. If you really have a good idea and you can really bring your good idea to market, you're going to make money. You're going to make a lot of money. I am come from the world of technology and of startups, and it seems almost that everyone who's entering that world for the first time to try to bring a new product to market, to innovate, is learning that lesson the hard way, right? So everyone goes into business expecting that they have a great idea and a great product, and then people will just come and sell itself, sell right. itself, right? They're also very protective about that idea that sometimes I don't want to tell you or you have to sign an NDA before I right. tell you my idea. I don't want you to steal it from them. And almost all sort of entry-level startup accelerators teach you that from the beginning. Look, if you really want to test how good your idea is, why don't you try call or email that person 
that could most easily build it in the world, like the product manager of Apple or in some big company and see how hard, how easy it is for you to pitch to them whether they should do it, right? But the reality is they hear like a thousand pitches a year, right? And in the world of startups, you quickly realize hundreds of people have the same idea simultaneously. Ideas are very cheap. It's all really about the execution, as you just said. This has been said in the field of music that, that most artists most artists don't fear theft, but they feel obscure. They fear obscurity. But it's, it's precisely this issue of being able to market your idea, to market yourself, to get a product to market, right? This is a very big obstacle as a practical matter. I know people that are involved with venture capital and with startups and so forth. And I know at least some of the better venture capitalists really are discouraging towards startups that are too focused on patents. Because, and I, I want to be careful here because as a startup, you do need to patent things. And the reason you need to patent things is very simple. If you're successful and you didn't patent things, somebody else will patent what you did and they will come and sue you and steal your profits. Okay. This is a very real danger. That's not what the patent system is supposed to be for, but it is a practical import of the patent system. So the need for defensive patents is important. I would never, ever tell anybody as a matter of advice, don't patent. You must under the current system. But you shouldn't be doing it because you think you're protecting your ideas. You should be laying down the groundwork to protect yourself if you're successful. So you have to do it. But that's not your focus should be. Right? Not on protecting your ideas, but on making your ideas practical. This is, way, this is the way people get ahead, not by worrying about whether or not they have the right paperwork filed with the right lawyer. Lawyers do not create innovations for the most part. That takes us almost to the reality of the patent system. It makes people compete who has the better lawyer instead of who's the better innovator. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. The other element of this, so it is true that if you have a patent, and you're successful, it may provide you with some protection from competition that may be valuable. But there's the other side of the patent coin, which is there are existing patents, and anytime you come up with something new, there's the danger that somebody else with a patent is going to come after you. There's a whole literature about patent trolls who say they don't actually innovate anything, they just sue people. They find out who the lenient patent examiners are, they submit all sorts of paperwork, they patent everything under the sun, whether it's practical or not as vague as they can, as broad as they can, and then they try to find somebody who's actually making money doing it and sue them. Okay? Now, this is not conducive to innovation by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. You give the examples in the book of James Watts and the steam engine and the Wright brothers and aircraft, right? So wow. these are hailed in popular culture as great inventors, and you in the book basically expose them they were patent trolls. <laughs> They were basically patent trolls. So the innovation that, that Watt made in the steam engine was actually relatively minor. There's actually two different kinds of steam engines. There's where the steam pushes on the piston, and there's where the steam sucks on the piston. The original steam engines, the steam sucked on the piston. It's actually the air pressure that pushes the piston, not the steam. So the steam cools, creates a vacuum, and the piston comes down. Now, you can't build very powerful steam engines this way. The very heavy relative the amount of power that they put out, you could never build a steamboat or a steam train using one of these low power one of these low power engines. Watt did is he made a small improvement over the design of these low powered engines. He then used this patent to threaten anybody that tried to build any kind of a steam engine, including the high pressure ones where it pushes on the piston, which don't even use his invention at all. So his invention was obsolete almost before it was ever used. 
but he was able to use it to prevent people from building high-pressure steam engines so that it was only when his patent expired that people started building high-pressure steam engines. That's why there were no steam trains. That's why there were no steam ships while Watt had his patent. That only happened after the patent expired because of the way he used it. The Wright brothers are actually a very sad story. I know they're great heroes in the United States, and I grew up with American history books and the Wright brothers and so forth. There's a wonderful book it's called Freeing the Skies about the Wright brothers, also about Glenn Curtis, who was also an early innovator in airplanes. But the thing about the Wright brothers, they, what sort of airplane did they invent? It needed a rail to take off. It flew about 10 feet above the ground for a couple hundred meters, and then it landed. It didn't fly and actually come back. It didn't go anywhere. It couldn't actually do anything. This was the airplane that they invented, right? What did they do after they invented this airplane? They patented it, and they locked it in their barn and refused to let anybody see it for fear that their secrets would be stolen. (laughs) It's really an incredible story, right? The only thing that they did was to come up with a relatively, again, a relatively minor innovation. There was a long, ongoing saga of airplane design that was going on before the Wright brothers and after the Wright brothers, <clears throat> the particular design that they patented, like the condenser of Watt, they patented the method so to control an airplane, you have to have you have to control the flow over the wings. And they did this by warping the wings, pulling it out with strings so it would change its shape in order to control the flight of the airplane. Very good. That's a necessary thing. It was invented long before for kites, but that's not either here nor there. Okay. The point is, it's actually not a very good way to build an airplane. You actually, if you looked at a modern airplane, you might have noticed that the wings don't actually change their shape. They don't morph up and down. What they have is they have their ailerons. They have fixed wing, fixed parts of the wing that move up and down on hinges. That wasn't actually invented by the Wright brothers. That was invented by Glenn Curtis. That's what actually makes pra- for practical airplanes. What the Wright brothers did do is they did sue Glenn Curtis for trying to build airplanes on the grounds that their patent for change to the wing by pulling on strings was infringed upon by his invention of having a, a flap that moves up and down, aileron that moves up and down. So that's the Wright brothers view. Now, there was good fortune in the case of the Wright brothers. The good fortune in the case of the Wright brothers was their patents. They didn't patent overseas. It was expensive to do that at that time. So they only had U.S. patents. And so almost all in between the Wright brothers, the very early 1900s, and then the uh, World War I broke out in 1914. Airplanes developed quite a bit in this period, not due to the Wright brothers, but due to the, mostly to the French. So the French had tremendous innovation airplanes. They had airplanes that delivered the mail at faraway locations, things like that, not just fly from one rail to some little landing strip. So we were fortunate as a society that patent wasn't in France, and therefore the French could actually build airplanes, even though the Americans couldn't. What do these two examples say about the popular image of the inventor? Is that applicable to many other inventors as well? So I would say this. The people who are the biggest patent trolls are often the greatest publicity hounds as well. So I think they tend to be well represented in history books. So if you've heard of the inventor, I'd say the chances of their patent troll are relatively high. But having said that, there's a lot of there's a lot of good innovators who really invented good and useful things, um, and didn't try to obstruct progress by other people, but contributed to growing industry and became wealthy because of their inventions. And rightfully, it's they tended not to be the ones in the newspapers and the ones with the secrecy. They tended to be the ones on the practical ground, building the factories, um, and actually getting things to work. Yeah, it's when I listened to Mark Andreessen and telling the early stories of computing, of software and of the internet, 
the way he describes it, it's there's like a lot of hobbyists who really do it for the sake of it. They openly share things and build on top of each other and they have this intense passion for the thing, right? So it seems to be very often the actual history of innovation. With patents, you basically can have someone who then says to all the rest who are willing to put all their energy behind it, okay, no, you can't do that anymore. So this is something that I wanted to come to. So let me talk a little about this. It's really about the life cycle of new industries. And what Andreasen described about the software industry, which is indeed, there's a lot of documentation for this. He, he knows this firsthand, but many other people do as well. This is typical of industries. It was typical, for example, the airplane industry, the car industry, other industries. And the life cycle is, as you described it, it begins with people who are very interested in the idea, very committed, who share back and forth. At some point, the idea becomes practical. People start building things and selling things. This does not bring the collaborative period particularly to an end. You have to understand, <clears throat> at the beginning, there's a very small market. You're not stealing out somebody else's market by selling a car when their books of cars don't exist. You're basically building a market that doesn't exist. There's not so much There's not so much this notion of I sell a car, you don't sell a car. It's if I sell a car, that's one more car that we all sold. So it's not so much competitiveness at this early stage. What happens, and there's often, if you look at these industries, there's usually hundreds of firms competing at the beginning, right? What happens is eventually the idea works its way through. New innovations aren't coming. The product matures. The market settles. So we now have a mature product with a well-defined market. Now, all of a sudden, there's a shakeout, okay? It's hard for the 100 firms to be competing about this. A few firms start to dominate, and you know what? They don't want competition for this existing market. And that's where patents come in. Because often in these industries, there are no patents. So they couldn't have been patented. But at this point, the industry goes and lobbies Congress or lobbies the courts and says, oh, we must have patents for animal products or computer software, whatever it is. And they're generally quite successful in this. So the point of this story is that you would think of patents if they were to be useful at the early stages where they typically aren't used and don't exist. And except for the occasional person, as you described, like a Watt or a Wright Brothers, who in the early stages mess things up by trying to patent things, they mostly come in at the late stages where there's no innovation anyway, simply to keep competitors out and to try to build some monopoly power for the firms that are already well established. The software industry, is. There was a, there's a wonderful quote about what Andreas was talking about, a wonderful quote from Bill Gates. Which is, he said, if it had been known at the time that we started building this industry, how paths would be issued, we never would have gotten off the ground. And if you know anything about software, if you've ever written software or so forth, the number of ideas incorporated, even in the simplest software, is just enormously large. Something like a loop, for example. Imagine some of the patents, these sort of basic building blocks on which all programs are built. Nobody would have been like, it would be like copywriting letters to the alphabet, right? It would be impossible. And in fact, it's interesting because even today, so we were talking about NFTs earlier. NFTs are built on blockchain technology. Blockchain technology was developed for originally for, for Bitcoin. Not only was this technology not patented, it's been enormously successful, as you can see. Not only was it not patented, we don't actually know who invented it at this point. It's like the opposite of a patent, total anonymity of the inventor. So you can see that patents didn't play an important role in bringing blockchain technology to fruition. And actually, that's true in general for computer software. It turns out that the use of patents for computer software is mostly used for a completely different purpose than what you would think. So what happens is that printer comp companies make printers like Hewlett-Packard. 
They patent the software into print cartridges. And why do they patent the software into print cartridges? So if anybody tries to, because what they do is they sell the printers real cheap, and then they charge a lot for the ink cartridges. That, But, of course, they charge way more for the ink cartridges than it costs them to make the ink cartridges. So it's, it, competitors could come in and undercut them very easily, but they won't allow that because if the competitors have the software needed to connect the ink cartridge, then they sue them for patent violation. This is also that we can have printers that are cheap and ink cartridges that are expensive, right? So if it wasn't for this, then we had printers that were expensive, and ink cartridges that were cheap, and I don't know why the world would be particularly worse place for that, but this isn't really what you would think the purpose of the patent system was. To summarize sort of the key argument behind patents, so we spoke a little bit about that moral case about not stealing ideas, and if you look at that more closely, it quickly turns out that's a fluke. It's something that we have some intuition about, but when you look at it, you're like, Yeah, I mean, if your friend steals your song text and gets famous with it, that happens in movies. But in real life, that wouldn't be a very good business strategy. And even if like, the law is not there to protect people from every sort of little moral vice, right? You can't make laws against cheating on your wife or something like that. And the more important argument that people actually use in the public debate is that you have this advantage or this incentive that's created through patents. By getting a monopoly for a limited period of time, by being the only person to monetize your invention or innovation, that increases just the price for innovators out there. That is what ultimately leads to an empirical debate, right? Correct. So the empirical debate that takes place for the following reason, because there's two sides to that coin. If I get a patent, that increases my ability to profit off of my invention. But the fact that other people already have patents makes it more costly for the innovate in the first place. So there's this balance of two things, right? If I have to pay off, I've had to license other things in order to build my product, I may earn more for it, but I've got to pay all these other people off. And that's what, what's the balance between these two? It appears actually as an empirical matter, it's something of a wash. They're probably the benefit you get from patent is more or less canceled by what you have at increased cost. So we basically have this enormous costly system occasionally runs wild and yet in the end does very little I encourage everyone to, to read the book and see like amazing and very deep empirical examples my favorite one is of course the pharmaceutical industry and we're going to talk a bit more about that and there's plenty of examples and studies if you make lists of the 3000 greatest invention as popular magazines or prices <laughs> that they won less than 10 were based on patents if you make a list of the most important medical innovations out of 30 or 15 there's one or two that had patents right so it's you just remember a, it's much better than me i don't remember the exact numbers you must have looked them up <laughs> yeah uh, yeah i've looked them up it's just fascinating that the story has so little empirical support right but before we go on to, and talk about pharmaceuticals because i think that really drives the message home and illustrates it and also my listeners we've talked a lot about the pharmaceutical industry before but that's some insight i wanted to park here right so i've talked in this podcast a lot about almost like pre-market regulations that are sort of bottlenecking innovations Right, I talked with Daystores Hall, for example, also about nanotechnology as an industry or aircraft or, or the FDA and pharma. So before you have approval at the FDA, you can't go to market. And that creates a bottleneck because if it costs hundreds of millions to bring a product to market, there's way fewer people who can do it. Patents are almost like the double whammy. They're like almost like the aftermarket or can be our aftermarket destroyer of innovation, right? When the market is already getting matured, there's still the danger of 
people who are abusing patents too. Let me talk through it because this issue of the first bottleneck, the regulatory bottleneck is particularly acute in the case of the pharmaceutical industry. And so Kelly and I talk about abolishing patents. And I should say that we talk about abolishing patents. We're not Liz Trust in the UK. We're not saying we, we, if somebody put us in charge, we'd get up there tomorrow and say, that's it, patents are gone. But because patents have terms, there's a natural way of phasing them out which is to gradually decrease the term until they're gone. And that has the advantage that after all, we could be wrong and we would have ample opportunity to discover if things were really going badly wrong by doing it gradually. So I'm not an advocate of any kind of sudden change, but I think gradual change is called for. Now, in the case of the pharmaceutical industry, neither of us, both of us are opposed to pharmaceutical patents, but neither of us will advise abolishing patents in the pharmaceutical industry as it exists today. And the reason for that is there's a, quite a complicated network of regulations surrounding the pharmaceutical industry. And I'm just going to run through the economics of producing a pharmaceutical product to give the background for this. So there's the, so the first idea, maybe it's a chemical formula, maybe it's a biological discovery or something like that. So then there's, that comes next is the process of testing. The first part of the testing is on animals. Then there's stage two, which is very limited clinical trials in human beings. And there's stage three trials, which are much more wide-scale testing in human beings. If those trials go properly, they all go. Then it goes to the FDA for approval. If the FDA approves it, so the patent is taken out of a very early stage. But, of course, it's of no use until you actually get approval. You can sell a product. And that's the FDA approval, which comes to the stage. What's interesting is to look at the cost structure of all of this. So one of the things you have to bear in mind, not all pharmaceutical products are successful. So sometimes companies, if you want to do this, and people act as if I don't know this when I advocate against pharmaceutical products, but of course anybody who knows this is very aware of the following fact. For, there could be 10 failures for one success. So when you count the cost of the success, you've got to count also the cost of the failures because you had to go through a certain number of failures to get to a success. So it's not just the cost of producing the successful product is the total cost. The total cost has to include all the failures as well, right? So in other words, nobody's going to innovate if they're going to get nine failures they don't get paid for, and they only get paid, they only get paid for the one thing. The benefit of the success has to pay for the failures. Otherwise, there's no reason to do it. But taking the point, the structure or composition of costs is interesting. So it runs roughly the following. Actually, the actual innovation and the first two phases of clinical trials are actually pretty cheap. But it's very expensive to bring a pharmaceutical product to market, and that's because the stage three trials are enormously expensive. I'm not sure I understand exactly why that is, or that anybody's really explained to me why, but I know the breakdown of cost. You need a very high sample size and observe them over a very long period of time. Yes, and I think the point is you have to pay the doctors to do this, right? Is that you can charge the patients for the pharmaceutical product, instead you have to pay the doctors to supervise the patients. There's and also all these restrictions on who you can take and you have to compare to the existing standard of care. There's all these things that make it just costier to find yeah. the right patient population and to get the data. Right. And then actually it turns out that the biggest expense by far is after they're successful and they do all this stuff, then they have to pay for the advertising to take advantage of the monopoly. That's actually where a very big part of the cost comes from. But that's neither here nor there. The point is, that this, the way the system exists now, right? when the patent expires, and there's also something else called uh, market exclusivity, which kind of is similar to a patent, but different than a patent. Um, when these monopoly rights expire, competitors are allowed, don't, not required to do clinical trials over again. 
They're required only to prove that their product is chemically equivalent to the product that was approved. So you can see that there would be a problem. If we ran a system the following way, I have an innovation. Somebody comes, we build this, we do these very expensive clinical trials. The moment that they're done, everybody gets them for free. Right. Now, the idea that people can jump into the market immediately is not true. But even it's, it'd be pretty, it'd be pretty disastrous if we have to go through 10 failures for one success. And then when we get the success, the results of the success are shared to everybody. So there has to be some kind of combined reform which also involves the clinical trials process and the FDA approval process, because this is also a very important bottleneck. And certainly health economists I've spoken with find the FDA to be more of an obstacle. The problem with the FDA is often the case with regulatory agencies is they're much more concerned with failures than successes. And part of this is driven not, and part of this isn't their fault. Part of this is driven by the way people think and by media coverage. So, some pharmaceutical product is introduced. Some number of people are adversely affected. Some of them maybe even die. This is very highly publicized as a failure. There was a really an awful incident in France a couple of decades ago that created one of the reasons a lot of vaccine skepticism in France was because of this very highly publicized and quite tragic failure of a pharmaceutical product that really did a lot of that really did a lot of harm. The really famous one which is actually the origin of modern regulation, was the thalidomide, which was a drug that was given to pregnant women to cause birth deformity. So they, I don't mean to minimize that these are bad things. But the problem is the other side of pharmaceutical products is that they save lives. And so you have to weigh these things against each other. You have to be willing to accept that some of these things aren't going to work and are going to hurt lives. But when you say, <clears throat> well, let's be safe, we delay this for years to make sure that it's safe, Right. So on the one hand, if it doesn't work, you save lives. On the other hand, and this is what the FDA never cares about, if it does work, you kill people. We really saw this, we really saw this during COVID, right? We saw the debate and we saw the reality and people, some people didn't want to take the vaccine. They didn't understand why they would not. It was by the testing that was certainly was tested, but you know, it wasn't tested as in against every possible population and so forth. But it really saved lives. And the calculation, if you looked at the calculation, was the worst possible estimates of the amount of damage done by the vaccine in terms of harm compared to the amount of good that it did by saving lives was overwhelmingly in favor of saving lives. This was very rare because there was so much pressure because of COVID on the FDA that they approved it, which they never would have done in ordinary times. So this time they made the right cost-benefit calculation. Usually they don't. So here's, this is quite a serious problem because we see the failures, but what we never see are the people that died because the drug never came to market in a timely way. The invisible graveyard. Yeah, nobody ever says, oh, it took the FDA five years to approve this really life-saving drug. Let's add up the number of people they killed during those five years. And yeah. if we had more investigative journalism, on those lines, instead of saying thalidomide killed so many people, I said the FDA killed so many people because this drug really does save lives and it delayed it for so long, right? Maybe we would have a more balanced, maybe we would have a more balanced regulation. The point I want to make here is I certainly don't think that patents should play a role in the pharmaceutical industry, but the whole industry needs to be reformed in a variety of ways to make it work. And simply removing patents, you have this complicated interlocking structure that you simply pull out one piece, you make a mess. Right. The whole thing has to be done in a much more systematic way than that. Simply getting rid of patents would make things worse rather than better, although things could be much better than they are.
Yeah. So we, we talked in this podcast very excessively about the FDA and what you just mentioned and the many problems um, the incentive structure creates. There's an interesting example where there's actually a smoking gun, which is aid in, AIDS in the 80s. Right. Yes. So the FDA, after they released or approved better blockers that were perfectly safe and have been used widely around the world, said, oh, now we're t saving 10,000 people's lives per year. So that means yeah. the seven that years before. 10,000 per year before that. Yeah, exactly. And there's actually much bigger <laughs> cases of like diabetes and insulin, for example, where they didn't allow it for 30 years and what turned out to be a much safer and much better way to treat diabetic people. And also what's little talked about often is the regulatory failure. Like sometimes there are actually approving very bad drugs and give them a false right. legitimacy. Like they're hyper cautious and trying to avoid that, but at the same time they do. A good example is gain of function research during COVID. We talked about that. Yeah, so it's, I'll just tell a little story about this because I gave, I once presented work with McKelly about our research on patents, our views on patents, to a group of health economists. And they were very negative about this idea of getting rid of patents until I mentioned, well, of course, we couldn't just get rid of patents. We've also got to reform the FDA regulation and probably get rid of stage three clinical trials altogether and replace them with something that works better. And suddenly their eyes lit up and said, yeah, no, you know what? You're right. We do need to fix the FDA. And you're right. If we do that, then we could get rid of patents. It was quite interesting. But the two things really go hand in hand. So the, the point is that everybody wants to do these randomized control trials. It's possible to do randomized control trials while you're selling a product. It's possible to track a product after it's been released for safety and withdraw it from the market if there really is a problem. It's true that doesn't look as good for the regulatory agency if they have to withdraw a product. I understand that. But this is a lot of this is a lot of the problem with regulation bureaucracy in the first place. It's downside risk for the bureaucrat and no upside gain. They don't yeah. gain anything if they save ten thousand lives by approving quickly, but they lose big time if they approve something that fails. So at least this extreme conservatives. This is I gather you've talked about this in your podcast on other topics, right? This is a ubiquitous issue with regulation. It has this conservatism towards innovation built into it, right? We're all what is it with nanotechnology? We're all worried we're going to turn into gray goo. There's some sort yeah, of we talked about like exactly that. that. Yeah. Okay, no, well. we actually talked about that yesterday on a different podcast about the gray yeah, goo. So it was the yeah, so the original gray goo. The original gray goo actually had to do with the invention of the atomic bomb. I don't know if you know the story. The very first nuclear test, I guess, it took place was the must have been in the is must have been in New Mexico desert. I guess it was near Los Alamos. At any rate, the physicists who built the bomb were betting whether it would ignite the atmosphere on fire and destroy the whole world. Fortunately, it didn't. Good, but just to so you would say on, on with pharma as is patents are a necessary evil. So the argument yes. that you have That's extremely it. high upfront costs and. Right. It's extremely but, cheap to reproduce. They're part of it's not so much as easy to reproduce, it's just that it's the not needing to reproduce the clinical trials puts the competitor in a huge advantage over the originator. So let me say the whole system is an unnecessary evil. Yeah. yeah. To simply remove paths would make it even more evil than it already is. The proper reform has to be to do a number of different things, including getting rid of paths, but only get rid of paths in the context of redoing other parts of the regulatory environment at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And it may be, in fact, that those other components are more important than paths. Yeah, so yeah. That is the harm done with paths downstream, which is having relatively costly drugs, 
may actually be relatively less important than the fact that we don't actually get life-saving drugs quickly. Mm-hmm, I mean, we haven't mm-hmm. never done a cost-benefit analysis, but I know that the cost of this excess regulation are quite high. And I, I do remember the fight of the gay advocates during the AIDS epidemic to get these drugs released and available to people. The whole thing was insane. These were people who had a very serious disease, right, at late stages with very little to look for except a painful death. And they weren't being allowed to try the damn drug. I mean, what is that? It's just, and yet these FDA bureaucrats are sitting there saying, not safe. Okay, it's a lot less safe without it, right? If it kills me, what the heck? Yeah, yeah. Also had a very interesting episode. And there's a very interesting book by a moral philosopher, Jessica Flanagan. So I'm also an economist and I can understand that case very well. But she makes, I think, in a way, an even more effective case. Like, how is it that someone can make the decision for you? to take a risk or not. So exactly what you're describing. So if we use a very common sense approach to my body, my choice, and even if we look at historical examples of how we evolved to make these decisions, it's morally a very impermissible for someone else to tell us what risk to take or not to take, right? And nobody's regulating that you or saying you can't climb the Mount Everest, right? There's no regulations as to who you can marry or not, even though it has a massive impact on the rest of your life. But that's this a different thing. This is a very libertarian point of view, but one I must say that I find very sympathetic in general. Um, at the same time, if you read her book, it's called Pharmaceutical Freedom. And yes, she argues from a libertarian point of view. What I really like about Jessica is that she makes the sense, the case very common sense. Like she right. uses moral premises that almost anyone agrees on anyway. And goes, even with these very simple, very common sense moral premises, we arrive at that conclusion. We don't need to convince anyone that they need to become libertarian. No, I know. It's funny. It's funny. There is a huge amount of common sense involved. And yet part of it's what's called the paradox of voting. People don't, I mean, most people just don't have much reason to invest a lot of effort into understanding these things. Well, maybe when you come across it and it pinches on our own lies, we rail against the regulation. But we never see it as the broader problem that it is. It's every everybody. It's funny. It's so almost independent of political philosophy. Everybody wants something regulated. It seems like right. Yeah, typically not the things. Typically not the things they want to do. But they're pretty sure that somebody else shouldn't be doing something. Whether if you're conservative, then maybe something about other people's sexual practices. If if you're liberal, maybe it's something about people what they smoke or put in their bodies or they eat or something. Everybody wants something that they think other people shouldn't be doing. And I must say, I feel that would be a better place if we just all agree to get off each other's backs. But that's, as you say, a topic for another podcast. Certainly, yeah. One thing I did want to talk a bit more about, how did patent law evolve the way it did? Let's say patent law has actually been around for a fairly long time. And it started in a funny way because originally patents... The patents originally weren't really necessary to, they were awards of monopoly. That's always been the case. In certain places, such as Venice, they were actually used relatively early on to reward innovators. But actually, in England, for example, they were, the Crown would award patents to people to have a monopoly on, I don't know, a certain kind of stationery or something like that. It had nothing to do particularly with innovation. And actually, the great patent reform, which I think was called Queen Anne's Law, if I remember correctly, changed it so that they could only award patents for innovation. 
and not just for any old thing. So I couldn't, I couldn't just say, okay, you've got a, you got a factory that's manufacturing paper. Now you've got the paper monopoly for the whole country. They used to be able to do that. They weren't allowed to do that anymore. They could only award patents for new things. So in that respect, the law was an improvement over what went. Instead of everything being a monopoly or anything that had to be a favorite of the king or queen was a monopoly, instead at least only new things could be monopolies. Originally, patent law worked much better than it did today. And the reason for that is because it was actually relatively difficult to get a patent. And you really had to prove something about a patent having being genuine innovation, having real value, and so forth and so on. And the problem is, and I think, I guess I, I, I can understand people that are in favor of patents thinking that a system like that would be better than no patents at all. And I, I think they might be. I'm not prepared to say that they're wrong about that. The problem is that once the system is in place, it's unstoppable. And this has been the historical problem with patents. They creep, and they never go back. They creep, and they creep. There's, the, there's always the thing about the camel's nose under the tent, and then you have the whole camel in the tent, right? Switzerland. Switzerland was a great example of this, right? Because Switzerland today is a hotbed of patents. Now, it turns out to be a relatively recent development. I think a lot of people know that Albert Einstein's first job is he worked in the Swiss patent office as a patent examiner. I think what most people don't realize is he must have been just about the first the first patent examiner in the Swiss Patent Office, because up until Albert Einstein's time, it was constitution of Switzerland prevented patents. There were no patents in Switzerland. And due to development of the chemical industry in Switzerland, which took place in Switzerland before patents, right? And then at the end, when the industry became successful, then they got patents. They started with no patents, and then they had a little bit of patents, and pretty soon they had all the patents, right? Germany today is, is a real patent hawk country. If you listen to Angela Merkel on the COVID drugs, patent, we need the patents. Which is interesting because historically, Germany, when Germany really had a lot of innovation, is Germany was really the leader of this, what's sometimes considered the second wave of the Industrial Revolution, which was a systematic application of science, particularly in the chemical industry, but in other industries as well. Germany was the leader in that in the late 19th century. And they, they did have patents, but they had a very weak form of patent. You couldn't patent a product. So in particular, chemical dyes were a big issue at that time. That was a big source of innovation. So you couldn't patent the color red. What you could patent was a particular method of producing the color red. So these companies were free to compete with each other to build red this way or build red that way. The equivalent today would be to say, okay, there's the Moderna vaccine. They can patent the method of producing the vaccine, but you can produce the vaccine using some other method. That would be fine. That leads to a lot. I'm not saying I'm in favor of that, but that much more limited kind of patent is much more effective. And the Germany we see today, a patent, right, is very different Germany than the Germany where patents were very narrow, very tailored, and very hard to get. And that, of course, is when all the innovation took place. There seems to be also some kind of a patent or IP nationalism, right? And when it comes to protecting German industry and prevent the Chinese to steal intellectual property. And it's also part of the strategy very often of international organizations like to harmonize intellectual. And there's also, if I read that correctly in your book, a pervasive influence of economists of basically arguing that intellectual, that IP protection is very important for economic development of countries, right? Oh, it's very important. Patent protection is very harmful for developing countries. I think this is widely agreed among economists. So if there's a, for example, there's certainly a, a, a strain of economists that say that patents are okay 
that they should never be applied to developing countries. Wasn't it and, that the new growth economic literature or something that I remember I thought I read about that in a book that you were criticizing Paul Romer and others on that point? Well, that was a patent hawk. So I'm sure we were criticizing Paul about this. And in terms of the now north-south divide, though, I don't think he played much of a role. So north-south divide is this idea. So there has been some debate. I know that Grossman and Heltman argued, but they didn't make strenuous argument. They, they argued that maybe patents could help the global south. I don't remember them being particularly hawkish about it, however. I guess so north. Certainly, the global north is us, and the global south is them, if you want to put a simple, if you want to put it in on So developing countries are sometimes called the global south because they tend to be in the southern hemisphere, and the rich countries tend to be in the northern hemisphere. For example, there was the, the I wouldn't say the Indian pharmaceutical industry was destroyed, but forcing India to have pharmaceutical patents. In fact, it's actually in reasonably good shape today, but it's a shadow of what it was, right? Before the Indians were forced to introduce patents, they had many more firms that produced many more pharmaceutical products and were much more innovative than they are today. So that was a loss, just not to India, but to a lot of places, because of course they couldn't sell their, they couldn't sell their generic products in places where patents were recognized. So they couldn't sell their generic products in the United States or in Europe. But they certainly could sell their generic products in India and also in various places, also in the global south, which didn't recognize which didn't recognize U.S. patents and so forth. So there was a lot. There was a substantial amount of harm done there. But my impression is that in general, economists are fairly sympathetic to the idea that developing countries at least should be excluded. They should be allowed free licensing or something like that. This was discussed extensively in the case of the COVID vaccines. Would the patents be waived or wouldn't they be waived? Was actually a little noticed in this is Moderna, who's now suing everybody for patent violations, actually waived, actually waived the pat their patents on the vaccines for the duration of the crisis. So the problem is, it's not that easy to produce. It's almost an irrelevant debate. It's just not that easy to produce vaccines. Outside of the United States and Europe and Japan, we're talking basically about India. India has a powerful pharmaceutical industry. They could produce vaccines. It's fine. If you take a country, most countries in South America or in Africa, most poor countries, you give them all the licenses or all the patents you want, it doesn't enable them to build vaccine factories, right? They don't have vaccine factories. They don't have the starting to build vaccine factories. They don't have the biochemists. They don't have, there's a whole industry that would need to be created before they could effectively produce vaccines. It's not that it couldn't be done, but it would be decades. It would be decades investment before they would be effectively producing vaccines. So in that sense, it was sort of a non-issue. It was a fight over, over form more than function. Yeah. Another example that I found interesting in the book was Italy as an example right. that it had a thriving pharmaceutical industry before patents. And afterwards, if anything, it was rather going less. Well. I don't think you find any pharmaceutical production in Italy today, except maybe there might be a plant or two that's owned by the Swiss somewhere or other. But certainly Italy today is not a... Italy is actually pretty good in biomedical stuff at their universities, for example. In certain areas like biomechanical devices, like artificial limbs and things like that, they're actually use microtechnology. They're actually pretty good. But today in pharmaceuticals, I don't think there's a whole lot going on in this country. And one of the things that is interesting about India and about Italy that functioned for a long time without patents, you know, okay, they're just ripping off other people. They're just doing knockoff drugs, blah, blah, blah. It's true. They certainly knockoff drugs, that's beyond a question. They also invented new and better things as well. This is what people mm -hmm. don't recognize. 
And part of the reason is people don't necessarily understand the process of innovation. And imitation, imitation doesn't necessarily mean just knocking something off. In the process of learning how to do it, you often make improvements. And there is a literature about this kind of incremental improvement process where you know you build and then you make things a little bit better, you tinker with it a little bit more. And usually more hands that are tinkering lead to more of these incremental improvements. In these particular early stages of the game, maybe you're getting these big jumps. But in the late stages of the game, these incremental improvements are pretty important and they add up. Better ways of packaging drugs shouldn't be underestimated. So remember, we were talking about the AIDS drugs earlier, right? Original, the original regime was you had to take three different drugs on some complicated schedule. It was very difficult for people to actually do. And the really key innovation took place in India, which was the single package. You just took a pill and that was that. And that's you say, oh, wow, you stick them together in a pill. Trust me, it's not as simple as that. They would have done it a lot earlier if it had been as simple as just gluing the pills, just gluing the pills together. Yeah. So the history of many regulations of patent law and many other things is a history of us not understanding innovation correctly, I think. I would also add think, to what you just yeah. said, something that many people don't realize before they have actual experience in business. Or you probably could, but what you learn is, or what I learned, and I think that's true, that real innovation happens on your business model and how you create it, not on the level of the product you create. It's like really how the different wheels of your business go in together to create profit. So it's whether or not you have like a subscription model or how you construct really when things are paid up front, there's a lot of magic to the wheels of business that you're creating and how business models are interlocking, right? Which is also basically the history of companies like Google or Amazon or Facebook. These have very sophisticated business models with loads of moving parts and components, right? Not just like one product. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think people really do tend to underestimate building effective being you know, having a product that's good to bring to market is important, of course. Without that, there's not much point in building. I mean, you really, one can go too far, but it's also the marketing people say it doesn't matter what it is, we just market it. But yeah, you have to have an effective way of marketing the product, collecting money for the product, making sure people are aware of the product. There's a you, you use the example, actually Google and Facebook and these are very good examples. I don't know people, maybe it's before most people's time, you wouldn't know about this. When I was growing up, we had these catalog orders. And you got these giant glossy catalogs in the mail or pages. And it was great when you were a kid. You know, leaf through, see all the toys and different clothes and stuff. And then, you know, you filled out a form and you mailed it in. It was mail order catalogs. Mail order catalogs were pioneered in the 19th century for farms, mostly to farmers in the Midwest. So these farmers in the Midwest, fairly well to do, but they're living on these farms with a lot of shops and clothing shops and so forth. One of the guys was named Roebuck and the other guy's name was Ward or something like that. And they created these catalog services. They, the, these farmers would get these catalogs, they'd mail order, and the stuff would be delivered by mail. And they could get nice clothes. They'd get all sorts of stuff that would be very hard to get otherwise. There was no patent or copyright involved with this. It was a good plan. And it was really a business plan, right? I mean, the idea of selling stuff is not that they built new products. They were selling the same clothes as everybody else, but they identified a market that nobody else was serving and they found an effective way to serve it. And despite the fact they had no patent, no copyright, so anybody else in the world could have said, aha, what a great idea, that catalog delivery service and could have gone into that business. The fact is, they both became fabulously rich. And that's the way, gosh, there's people think of Google as a search engine, but there's half a dozen search engines around. Everyone is, everyone just as good as Google. 
Exactly. Other examples are for innovations that are really on the sales and growth and marketing side. So LinkedIn, for example, I'm not sure they were the first one, but in early days of social media, you wanted to get network effects. So they understood that was important and they deliberately designed the product onboarding in a way so you would see your friends very quickly. You had one button where you could invite all friends. And there's all these things that they realized that they did, that they found that were innovations that pe other people weren't using. And they only worked for a brief period of time, but it's because as soon as people imitated it too much, other social networks, right. other products, you couldn't do it anymore because people started distrusting. It's just an example of, you know, how the innovation in a business isn't necessarily always on the product side is really right. a business has loads of different components before before there was facebook there was something called myspace which people have probably forgotten by <laughs> now but it was facebook if you actually look technically at the differences between facebook and myspace you won't find that they're that terribly different it's just that facebook found a really good model of building social networks that myspace never developed and it's not that easy it's not that easy to imitate so the people that are you know successful entrant actually has been TikTok. But they've entered in a completely different way by finding a different niche in the marketing space. So they never started by competing directly with Facebook, but they introduced a new product. And now they're building their social networks outwards from the short videos, which is what they specialize in. Exactly. By the way, I must say, I keep telling people this. Everybody talks about the power of Facebook and the power of Google and the power of these guys and the power of those guys. If you've been around for a while, I can tell you the names of the guys that were the powerhouses. What was the big one? Lotus one, two, three. But you never heard of them. They were the Google of their day, and nobody's ever heard of them. This is a this is an industry where there's a lot of competition, and companies come and go, and they can disappear pretty quickly. And you want to ask me? I wouldn't be investing a lot of money in Facebook because Zuckerberg seems to have gone crazy with this metaverse thing and their actual market, which is Facebook itself, doesn't seem to be particularly growing anymore. And somebody like TikTok is going to knock them off and that's going to be that. The last thing I wanted to talk about is what's possible now that we have blockchain, which is a decentralized ledger of transactions. It works without patents. It works without third parties. And I was having conversations about that podcast before, for example, to create patent pools that are on the blockchain, right? So they're easier to fund because you can tokenize them. So I'm a little bit less enamored of blockchain than other people are. Oh, I think it's mm -hmm. been a great innovation. I feel a little bit like this. There was a point where they issued patents for computer programs. And the computer programs were, oh, this is how a Coke machine used to work in the old days. Let me do this in a computer program. They say, oh, that's a great innovation. We'll give you a patent for that. So I feel a lot of blockchain stuff is, here's something we've always known how to do. Let's do it on blockchain instead. Now, I think it's a bit like throwing darts at the dartboard. I think some of these are probably much better done in blockchain. But I think also... I don't know. It must be the people that work on blockchain must be aware of some of its limitations, right? You don't store massive amounts of data in blockchain. It only can store small, small pieces because it's a giant. There's basically a single ledger, right? And if you start storing huge, giant video files or something in your ledger, it doesn't work anymore because it just gets to be way too big. So if you and the other thing, maybe you can correct me if I'm right. My impression is there's not really good search facilities within blockchain. This is the other. This is the other issue that I think is important. So if we're talking about patents, for example, and we start registering patents on blockchain, the issue becomes how easily is it then to find them? I want to find all patents that bear on some particular thing. 
I don't know if that's particularly easy to do on blockchain. So the idea, idea of a centralized ledger that's difficult to tamper with and impossible to tamper with is obviously an important one. But I think there's a bit too much of a, tension, a, a tendency to say it's magic. Right? What can't we do with blockchain? It's proved out that it's very important for cryptocurrencies, right? Because that's exactly the problem we face with cryptocurrencies. NFTs, in a way, are a bit like cryptocurrencies, but somehow linked to some something that's perhaps more symbolic than real, but at least is symbolic. Don't know. My impression is that NFTs are a bit of a had a bit of a surge and you know, kind of have quieted down a bit. Am I wrong? Am I wrong in thinking yeah. that? I think NFTs are basically a misunderstanding, right? So what right. people see is this digital art, JPEGs. Right. But I think what I'm more bullish on, what I find interesting is using blockchain or NFTs as a way to transact property rights and claims, right? Right now, I think we right. have a very expensive system with a lot of lawyers, lots of contracts. Oh, I own this, you own this. Right. And um, to transact shares in companies, to transact shares in patents for that matter, is very costly and expensive, right? This has very, these very high transaction costs. So through blockchain, where you don't need third parties, you can just cut down on tons of these transaction costs and make all sorts of markets much more liquid. I want to put two notes of caution on that. The first note of caution is sometimes the lawyers are involved for a reason, and the reason isn't to make things more complicated. But for example, I know something of the entertainment industry because I used to live in Los Angeles. I knew people who were involved with the entertainment industry. In the entertainment industry, there's a game between the lawyers to write the contracts to take advantage of the other person, right? And the person, the reason I have a lawyer is to make sure that when you, somebody reads the contract carefully, make sure there's no hidden gems in it. And whether it's done on blockchain or wherever it's done, if large sums are at stake, obviously it's not so important if I'm buying a computer, but if we're talking about royalties on something that might go into millions and millions of dollars, right? It's important that there not be hidden loopholes inside of a contract. So just registering the contract is important. But some of the effort that goes into this actually involves scrutinizing the contract to make sure everybody understands what it says. And you can't avoid that by blockchain. The other cautionary note I would say is for something like that to really work, it has to be, it has to not necessarily be universal, but it has to be nearly universal. If you only take a tenth of the market, at the end of the day, it's probably not going to work that well because I want I want to know that whoever I'm doing business with is also using the same thing. It's like there was a day in my time when I was the only person in the world that used PDF files, it wasn't very useful in those days. <laughs> Later, everybody used it. It became great. There's like a critical mass that you have to hit in order to make something like that work. There was, there's a friend of mine, David Kopsel, who started a firm. I don't know what's happened to it. I don't know if he's back to teaching now again, so I don't know what he's doing. But he was using blockchain technology to restore people's private DNA information. And he built a firm that was specialized in doing this. I don't remember... I don't remember the details. My impression is it was a good idea, but one that didn't actually take off in the end, as some good ideas don't. But so it's not so difficult to think of things that might be good on blockchain. But I think it's somewhat difficult. This is, the, of course, the great thing about innovation, right? You can't find really out until you try it. <laughs> it's a discovery um, process. Yeah. It's a discovery process, yeah. But I don't doubt for a second that there's some really good applications of blockchain that we haven't seen yet. It is a very, it is a very impressive technology. That guy, what is his name? Satoro? Is that the guy's name? Satoshi Nakamoto. Yeah, not, yeah. that guy was a genius. Wish we knew who yeah. he was. Um, yeah. 
Fantastic. Shall I phase it out? Is there anything okay. else you want to talk about or mention? Or no, I think we've hit. I think we hit most of the high points here, and it's really been a pleasure and to speak to you. You know, a lot of the topic, and you have good questions. And I'm, I have to watch some more of your podcasts because it sounds like you've had some pretty interesting characters that you've been uh, you've been talking to. Sure, I'm very glad and honored that you're now in the list of fantastic guests that I had on the show. <laughs> I was really long, long awaiting this conversation because, again, I was so influenced by the book. It's to me, IP law became just a key tenet of my thinking, or just think my, my thinking about what else is out there. How are bad laws holding back regulation and bad laws? holding back innovation. I understand you're now in a place you're now in a place where there's perhaps the opportunity to have less regulation, get more things done. Exactly. And it's also mm -hmm. not always about less regulation or no regulation. It's really just about better regulation I and agree. also creating a competition between jurisdictions, right? right? So where you as a business can shop around and where can I combine best sort of safety and efficiency for the purposes of my business? Right? I agree. There's probably very little regulation in Somalia, but it's probably not a terribly good place to do business. Exactly. It turns out that businesses often prefer regulation and regulatory certainty, which is totally fine. Yeah. It just depends on for what purposes you need it or want it. You don't need a Swiss bank account rate level of security of history in every for every case of any innovation sometimes you're good when but anyway long debate i'm really glad david that we had this conversation thank you very much okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.